So today on the airwaves, we have Dr. Aileen Kennedy joining us to discuss the proposed addition of 21 gender-affirming surgeries to the Medicare Benefits Scheme. So thanks for joining us on Tune FM today. Thanks for having me, Ash. So just to get us started, can you define what a gender-affirming surgery actually is? Yeah, of course. There's a, there's a range of different procedures that are performed, um, and this is for people who don't feel comfortable um, in their uh, the gender assigned at birth, and they may undergo different hormone interventions, or they may want to have um, surgeries to change the appearance of their genitals, or they may want to have surgery uh, to change, uh, to remove breast tissue. They may want to have surgeries to remove, say, an Adam's apple, or to shave that down. Um, so different markers, um, visible markers on the body that are associated with one gender or the other, uh, they, these are surgeries that are intended to maybe change the appearance of those features. So how strict are the regulations surrounding these surgeries right now? Well, as an adult, um, it's fairly easy to access those. Um, it's, it's a highly medicalized procedure. Um, so you'd need to see a psychiatrist, you'd need to see psychologists, you'd need to then seek um, the assistance of different specialties. Um, so there's certain, I don't want to say hoops you've got to go, jump through, but there's certain procedures that have to be followed, but there's few limits on who can access that. With um, people under the age of 18, that 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 is more heavily regulated. It used to have to go to the family court for a decision in every case where a child under the age of 18 wanted to have any kind of gender-affirming medical treatment, whether that was, well, that was usually hormone treatment first to um, delay um, puberty and then to turn puberty to the um, gender that the person's comfortable in. Um, but also some surgical interventions. Usually the family court will not approve genital surgeries, but they might approve chest surgeries um, or other kind of cosmetic procedures. Um, so that used to have to be approved by the family court uh, in every case. Now um, there, there was a decision in 2017 that said that Children, um, if there's no dispute between the child, the medical carers, and the parents, then um, that could be approved by the parents. Uh, if there is dispute between those different stakeholders, then it would have to come back to the family court. So it's a little muddled in terms of minors, um, in terms of the regulations are a little um, unclear. Very different from countries like, say, the UK, where there are it's very difficult for minors to access gender-affirming treatment, as this is often called. Um, but in Australia, it's um, a little bit more progressive, I think. Is it just transgender people who have these surgeries? Well, um, intersex people may seek to have these surgeries as well. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about... What, um, when I talk about gender-affirming surgeries, it's not so much the procedures as the procedures together with the purpose behind them, which is usually to change the appearance of the sex characteristics of the bodies. Um, so people who are transgender will have these surgeries, 
These surgeries are also performed on people who are intersex. In other words, people who are born with innate characteristics of the sex characteristics that are not stereotypically male or female. So intersex is the term that's used. Sometimes the term is innate, uh, innate variations of sex characteristics. Medically, these are termed disorders of sex or differences of sex development. And so those people will also access those procedures, but it will usually be done without on the basis of parental consent. So in other words, before they're old enough to make a decision for themselves, these um, surgeries and these different hormonal interventions will happen without that person's personal consent. So it's a strange situation. We have, on the one hand, people who are transgender who may be find it difficult to access gender-affirming treatment. On the other hand, intersex people may find it hard to avoid having these same procedures performed on them without their consent. So I, I guess the the thread that runs under all this should be autonomy. People should decide for themselves how they feel and what, what sort of how they want their bodies to express that that inner inner sense of themselves. Mm. What do you think needs to be done to allow autonomy to, I guess, be enshrined within medical care, especially in cases like this? Ah, oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, yeah, we. I guess partly, I think that law and medicine maybe need to be less obsessed with having a binary a sex binary and having a very strict boundaries between what we understand as male and what we understand as female and maybe understand that that those boundaries might be quite porous or permeable for a lot of people and i think having these really rigid boundaries between male and female actually produces a lot of discomfort unhappiness dysphoria and um, trauma for a lot of people, both intersex and transgender. I think there's a lot of uh, uh, developing understanding socially of the situation for people who are transgender, who feel like their bodies, or perhaps don't feel like their their identity is, is um, male or, or female alone. They might feel uh, like they're non-binary or they might feel to some different way um, of being in the world which is not sort of strictly male or strictly female. I think society is actually starting to grasp that mm-hmm. and grasp the nuances of that to some extent and and that things like our gender might be somewhat fluid uh, in the same way that our bodies change a lot over time. Perhaps our gender identity fluctuates over time. And I, I do think that we're starting to understand that. And I think the medical community is, has been very supportive of the, the journey for transgender people over the last century, um, has tried to be supportive. But at the same time, I think, like the rest of society, the medical and the legal, you know, communities are sort of bound up with this binary understanding of male and female. And so often that can, sort of lead them down the wrong path. Mm. And so I think that um, this loosening of some of those things for medically has, we've seen a lot of progress. For intersex people, I think the journey has been a little bit less progressive. Um, So most people don't really understand what it means to be intersex. They think it's something to do with gender. Actually, 
intersex is purely a biological thing. So you don't really have an intersex identity because intersex is not a gender. Um, So most intersex people identify as male or female. But uh, the problem for people who are intersex is that their, their bodies aren't sort of stereotypically male or female and therefore the medical community or some sections of the medical community uh, jump in early um, as when they're still children or infants even and change their bodies to make them look more stereotypically male or female. And um, sometimes they'll end up with a body that looks female in, but they might develop a gender identity that's male, which is obviously traumatic. But more than that, I think people find that they feel that they've been violated because their bodies have been changed without their personal consent. And, um, you know, there's a long history of trauma in the intersex community around that. I think the law, it sort of almost clings to it. It's very clear, defined definitions of things because yeah. that's how you avoid loopholes. Well said. How do we, you know, how do we move past that? Especially with, when it comes to defining one as a man or a woman or male yeah. versus female. Yeah. What would that look like? That's such a good point. I think law does like nice clean boxes to put people in and nice sharp lines between those different boxes. And I think law just kind of needs to surrender its attempts to control these and, and to sort of f- fashion these very strict categories of male and female. Really, um, I think we could be more flexible in allowing people to define their own gender identity. Um, I mean, we could even do without uh, gender markers on identity documents. So, you know, why do we have to have ident- uh, gender markers on our, our driver's license or our birth certificate or passport? Um, if we do have to have them for one reason or another, maybe make it pretty flexible how a person uh, can change that. For intersex people particularly, that can be very important. And as I say, I think we're finding that people maybe don't have a fixed gender identity, that it actually can change and fluctuate and that it may not, you know, people may not sort of feel like this is something that's so innate and rigid. Mm. that. um, So I think maybe... We could think about easing the grip of law and medicine on these binaries and just in the same way that law has had to uh, loosen its grip on other categories, um, you know, things like race. You know, we used to have very strong ideas about race and it's sort of biological. And now we've come to see, understand that's often largely a social construct that has some relationship to biology in the same way that male and female obviously has a relationship to biology. There's, it's not like there's no reality of male or female bodies or male or female identities, but um, I think the problem is, is when these categories become so ossified, so fossilized, mm-hmm. that they become impervious and then we have to change people so that they fit into the categories instead of loosening up the categories so people can move from one category to another. Mm-hmm. I hope that makes sense. It does. It's interesting that you say about you know gender being fluid as we grow up. 
because I, I read someone say this very interesting thing. This was a, a cisgender man, so someone who was born as a male and identifies as male. Yeah. And he said, my gender identity when I was a child was boy. My gender identity now is a man. Interesting. So even within that, there, there's a shift because the social right. constructs and the social expectations of who you are as a boy or as a girl is very different to them as, as a man or as a woman. And, you know, it's, yes, very it's true. interesting, you know, you bring up the social construct with, with regards to race. We see it in, in different cultures as well in regards yeah. to gender. Yes. There's the Fafafine yes. in Samoa and the Pacific Islands. I think the, the Hijra um, yes. you know, over, over in India. Yeah. There's a lot of different cultural gender identities. That's very well. true. Lots of different cultures didn't understand male and female to be sort of pure categories but it was more the role that you you undertook that's there that's well said yeah um and sometimes those other sex categories were um understood as social constructs and sometimes they were understood as biological constructs uh, not constructs because we don't really understand bi- biology as constructed mm. we sort of think of biology as being sort of like just there in nature but in fact there's lots of entanglement of culture and biology as well and i think that's shown if you do any sort of research on sex differences and intersex then you see that the way science even investigates sex differences is highly you know socially constructed so there's a huge entanglement of science with sort of our cultural understanding so you know, it's, it's difficult to even talk about male and female sex as if they're kind of these pure categories. Because the we, existence of intersex people, you yeah, have already established that, you know, 1.7, approximately 1.7% of the population has some biological uh, sex trait that, that, that puts them outside the stereotypical norm. Mm. So, and many people probably don't even know. Exactly. A lot of people may not ever come to discover. Um, so you might have a chromosomal anomaly where some people are XXY, so they have actually got 47 um, chromosomes, um, and so they have uh, two Xs and a Y. Some people might have just an X, so there'll be 45 chromosomes. That's not very well known, but that's actually quite, um, well, it's not common, but it's very well known within that specialty of science mm. that chromosomally there's a lot of variation. Um, it's rare, but it's not vanishingly rare. Um, so, and that runs across the whole gamut of different kinds, different forms of sex characteristics. So, um, so our biology. I mean, even if you think about the sexed body fluctuates over time. So we have a trajectory as from birth to death. As an old person, our sexual bodies change enormously. So our sex characteristics, you know, are very different as an infant from what they are uh, at puberty and then when we're uh, at a reproductive age and then, you know, people get older and their body, you know, our, our sexed bodies change a lot. So... We have all these different fluctuations and trajectories through time and through different cultures as well. So I think we need to kind of accept that a little bit more and not see that as some sort of ideological position, but as an actual sort of scientific um, and social reality. 
what do you reckon the first step is to to pushing that forward? You know, taking that step into that space where you can. Oh, that's a really that. good question. I mean, I think, as I said, I think maybe rethinking the need for sex markers on many of our identity documents is one step in that direction. Uh, I've lobbied for a long time for legislation to prohibit interventions on intersex children before they're old enough to consent for themselves. And that legislation is actually passed now in the ACT. They just, uh, earlier this year, they passed legislation which will come into effect next year that says that children with intersex variations, um, they shouldn't do any medically unnecessary uh, surgeries or hormonal interventions until they're old enough to decide for themselves. So that might be before the age of 18, but um, it won't be as they do it now at the age of 18 months or five years. A lot of these surgeries are performed on children. So I think that's an important step. I think the in Australia, the move by the federal court to allow children uh, decisions about children uh, changing or transitioning, undergoing different gender-affirming therapies. I think that's been a good move because um, g- generally speaking, litigation is seen as expensive and, and traumatic and difficult. Um, and so I think I think Australia's been moving in the right direction in a lot of these uh, a lot of these issues. Um, the federal government has already done a lot of work around definitions of legal sex and the way in which questions are asked about a person's sex and gender on things like the census forms and stuff like that. So the federal government has done a lot of work in this in this space. Um, so I think you know there's lots of gaps to fill, um, and I think that the the fact that um, th- there's a, this move to allow people to access medical intervention f- to affirm their felt gender is a really good move in that direction. So I'd, I, I hope this legislation will, or this proposal will get up and become part of the MBS. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. I had my a pleasure. very brilliant conversation. I, I quite enjoyed it and I hope... Our listeners learned something and and enjoyed listening to it as well. Thanks so much for the invitation, Ash.